0: The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Hey, hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Thursday, September 21st, 2023. And this episode is coming to you from the beautiful Quebec, Canada on a lengthy, lengthy work trip. And did we just get some new music? We sure did. I had realized slowly, like a dense idiot, that my music was getting just a little repetitive. So let's try something new, see if we can add some zig to the zag. For anyone that's just tuning in for the first time, thanks for joining us today. I've noticed quite a few new listeners popping up, and it's great to have everybody here. Some of you have sent me emails recently, and it's been really fun hearing some feedback and suggestions and getting to know some of you folks before we actually get a chance to meet on the range. Also, thank you for the words of encouragement on a personal note. I've met a few people on the line and a few people online via emails that gave a few attaboys, and I really appreciate it. Not everybody in the population is going to find my content relatable or pertinent or even agreeable with everybody's viewpoint or techniques, but I'm just glad we can all relate to something that we all have in common, like shooting rifles, having fun, and doing it all over again the following weekend. So, getting started here, remember that round that was misfired on the last episode? It was in the chamber during a rapid string of rapid prone, it didn't go off, it was ejected, and then later picked up during brass and trash call. Well, the bullet tip looked silvery and bronzy at the same time, and it was actually only in the chamber for four seconds or less, according to my video recording. And personally, I've never seen a bullet change colors like that before, and neither had anybody else on the line that I asked, and there was some serious experience on the line that day. Out of curiosity and follow-up for the podcast, I reached out to Tommy Todd, who is the chief ballistician over at Sierra Bullets, to see if he had an explanation for this interesting transformation. And of course, he did, like he always does. After providing the facts to Tommy, he responded saying that this is actually not very surprising to him. He mentioned that the discoloration and tarnish is actually pretty common on copper, ESPECIALLY when you expose it to different oxygen levels and trace chemicals in the air. They fight this problem all the time, and higher temps wreak more havoc tremendously. Tommy mentioned that chambering around in the bore exposes the bullet itself to trace elements of what gunpowder is made of, and other chemicals present in the air and the bore, and then mix in the temperature of the bore from the previous rounds recently shot through it, and now you have a recipe for discoloration, which is purely cosmetic. Well, that makes sense. He encouraged me to duplicate it sometime in the future, which I'll probably just do for entertainment value. I've definitely seen tarnish on bullets in the past, but usually that's in response to being in a box for several years and having long-term exposure to ambient air and oxygen. Well, Tommy, that's pretty cool. Thank you for the response. Well, I have a little bit lined up for you today to keep us occupied for the next 23 to 47 minutes, depending on your attention span, covering a bit of loop closing, some loop opening, a few words from our listeners, a results rundown, and just a brief visit into the mental machine to hit on a segment that one of our readers brought to my attention that I think is a great topic to bring up multiple times throughout the season because it's often overlooked. Yeah, Banks is pointing at me right now. Yes, I'm guilty of making this mistake. So let's get down to business here to get to a quick email from a listener about the Monard Shooting Jacket experience. Moving on. Back in, oh, well, way back to episode four, I had discussed the Monard Ultimate HP Shooting Jacket as well as my experience from start to finish. If you haven't heard that episode yet, which surprisingly has the most amount of plays according to my statistics, I talked about the process of doing my own measurements, 19 to be exact, as well as a few snags that I hit after the jacket was delivered. Looking back on it, I still stand by my statements about the issues I was having with the coat and the service that was offered or really not offered to me after making the purchase. Just a quick refresher so you don't have to backtrack episodes, the problems that I had were mainly threefold. First, the pocket on the right side of the jacket, which traditionally holds the leather ammo pouches for offhand, was too far rearward toward the right hip, making it far from easily accessible during offhand. I felt like I was going to tear my right shoulder seam on the jacket, not great. Also, the top grip elbow pad was too far to the inside of my left elbow, and the outer seam of the elbow pad was actually exactly where my left elbow contacts the mat. It created a ridge that I basically have to teeter on during prone. Not a big big deal if I'm on plush grass, but a big big deal if I'm on a more firm surface. I'm not I'm not trying to play princess and the p here, but it's pesky as all get out, and I find it really annoying and honestly kind of a really poor design. Lastly, I didn't like the top grip location, which acts as a pulse pad on the sling arm. It's right at the center of my bicep. Not a great placement for something designed to be on the inside of the sling. For me, that absolutely does no good it doesn't keep the sling in position and it doesn't stop the pulse and it's a really 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 big waste of real estate now after the jacket was delivered when i asked for these items to be addressed since it was still winter time none of my requests were honored i was told that the offhand pouch was for tools for offhand not a 20 round leather ammo pouch that's offered by most high power retailers nationwide because that's an outdated technique. And that the pulse pad and elbow pad couldn't be moved because he didn't know how to re them on a radiused platform and would just send them to a seamstress anyways, which is just what he recommended I do. And that I should not shoot my sling elbow in toward the bore; That I should shoot my prone position with my left elbow flared out like we're doing the chicken dance. Not gonna happen. My opinion was, again, my opinion, was that it was one of those classic, you bought it, you're stuck with it, it's not my problem anymore. Which wasn't quite disclosed to me before purchasing the jacket. So, not a great experience for me, but that's just one man's viewpoint. In full transparency mode, I've heard of several individuals who have had great experiences with the new importer, which is why when the time comes, I'll probably just order the same jacket, with the same specs, knowing that I'm getting whatever is something that I'm already accustomed to in regarding to the flaws. Recently, I had a listener reach out to me via email about the Monard coat because he was about to begin his endeavor and wanted a little information about my experience. I'm really glad he emailed because it gave me a lot of confidence in this jacket. The listener is an avid shooter and had been using this coat for 12 years. 12 years, and that's just now getting to the point where he needs to order another one. 12 years. That's awesome. I had actually looked at my jacket after the second full season thinking, man, that thing really has been doing all right. Even the seams are still holding pretty strong, and I put that thing through its paces. I will admit some of the dye is starting to run off on the collar and the shoulder straps, but if that's the biggest issue since it's arrived... I'm completely okay with that. Now, this listener is not going through round two of Monard's using the same importer. His original coat was imported through Sean McKenna, which I understand was the main man for Monard prior to the current importer. This was back in the days of having a little too much junk in the trunk, if you know your high power history over the last decade or so, of which the CMP was especially upset about. Our listener is going to go through the newer importer, getting fitted correctly in person, and hoping that this jacket lasts just as long. Now, I know he's not alone here. I actually have a friend nearby who's doing the exact same thing. My friend is going to meet up in Oklahoma at some point this fall and get sized up to make sure everything is spot on with it. My suggestion to both of these guys was just to watch out for some of the setbacks that I experienced in the construction of the jacket. What I'm hoping is that if it's something they could see themselves experiencing as problems, i.e. the pulse pad, the elbow pad, and the ammo pouch locations, maybe they can get ahead of it and ensure the jacket is constructed with a few of these items addressed ahead of time so they aren't making follow-up calls or getting frustrated with their $1,000 plus jacket. On a separate but related note, I had a shooter come up to me at the cup matches at Camp Perry this year to chat about the Monard coat design. He had seen a few here and there, but he really wanted to see if I liked it, which obviously I did. This guy was not going to get a Monard, actually he was traveling to Finland this fall to get fitted in person by Kurt Thune. That's a hell of a dedicated man right there, and it sounds like a sweet vacation if I had to be honest but that's actually not the first person that I've heard of that was interested in Kurt Thune's jackets. That's K-U-R-T-T-H-U-N-E, by the way, and I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. I've been told by another shooter that he was seriously considering that as an alternative to Monard, which seemed to be like a pretty good idea. I was lazy, of course, and didn't really feel like looking into it at the time. I'm not sure which Kurt Thune model this guy was looking at. I see a few offered here a uh, high power jacket which looks relatively straightforward but i recall seeing a few on the firing line a few times that were stamped with names on the back and that does not look like the high power jacket i'm looking at now online i could be wrong here and maybe that's just an add-on feature getting away from the high power jacket on a different topic i've realized that if i'm going to get anywhere this winter with my high power scores i'm going to have to work on some serious dry firing on the scat inside to do that, though, I'm going to have to find a way to use a scope at anywhere from 15 feet all the way down to 11 feet if I'm running practice and prone. Getting my white oak scope down to that focus range should be relatively easy with minimal equipment because it's already set up to focus down to 10 yards, which is good for indoors. But getting my night force that can only focus down to 50 yards may be a little bit more challenging. So what's my plan here? Well, I had to ask around. With the White Oak scope, I've been told to create a lens reducer for the front aperture which should allow for focusing a little closer, or find a diopter that would allow a much closer focus. I've also been told to get a bigger house. I guess that's a slightly more expensive option. Dave out west also suggested a home-built reducer system that would work quite neatly if I had access to the tools necessary to make it. That'll require a little creative thinking, but if I'm up to the challenge and get some time and motivation, I might be up for it. I've also been told that dry-firing into a mirror can nearly double the apparent distance that your scope is focusing to. Basic setup here. Set up a mirror along the far wall with the target located behind you, to where you can see the target in the mirror. And it creates a bit more distance between you and the target for the scope to focus on. Basically, you're nearly doubling the length of the room you're in by shooting backward, essentially. Pretty clever. Someone mentioned that it also works on their SCAT, but when I was initially setting up my SCAT, I had a fairly big issue with reflections of the SCAT signal bouncing off my wooden floor, So I'm going to abstain from that idea in the mirror for frustration's sake. But dry firing into the mirror is a really clever idea. Option B, or C I guess if I'm magically building a bigger basement for option B, would be to check out the DFAT system, DFAT. That takes a lot of the guesswork out of the machining and finagling, and the DFAT system from what I gathered is sort of a diopter that screws in or fits onto the far end of your scope, allowing you to focus at a closer distance than the scope normally focuses to. I've sent them an email asking if we can get that scope dialed down that low using a night force 56 to 55 conversion that they offer. I'm not too optimistic about their response, but we'll soon find out. So when the snow starts flying and it gets too cold outside and I've packed it up for the winter, Processed all my brass for the whole season, maybe got some brass ready for next season and loaded up for the next few matches, maybe I'll get motivated and get something done. If I can't work Dave's great setup for plan A, then maybe I'll see if the DFAT might be a lazy man's answer. Alright, let's jump into a results rundown to chat about the match and a half that'll close up some of the loops from our last episode, but create a few more. Moving on. Alrighty then, let's get right into the chaos and chat about this previous weekend, as well as get into doctor mode and try to diagnose some of these hang fire issues that <clears throat> still exist. This previous Saturday was host to the Illinois State Short Course Championship. Held in Bonfield, Illinois, it was an 80-round across-the-course match with a perfect weather setting for putting down a perfect 800, of which nobody did. But I felt like... I felt like I could. I truly mean that. I woke up feeling well-rested, motivated and determined, and hyperly focused on only letting good shots go downrange. You know the feeling. I knew my offhand was fairly solid from the last few matches, and as long as I kept my wits about me, the rapids should be clean, and the same for slow fire. I had a fairly good load worked up, and my positions have felt more solid than ever after making some tweaks. Was it possible? Maybe. Of course, like trading shares, my gut instinct this morning wasn't built upon past performance. And it certainly didn't show on the range. Uh Yeah. Well, why didn't I shoot a perfect score? Because problems. Problems with the rifle. Problems with my follow through and problems with my trigger control and problems with my focus during offhand when things were going slightly, well, for lack of a better term, mighty ugly. Okay, how do I say this? This was the most fun that I've ever shot like so much hot garbage. Great people, perfect weather, good competition, and I was squatted up with a hammer of a shooter named John from the western part of the state, who was great to get to know over a few stages of high power. Now, getting slightly off-topic here, it is really cool to watch people that do things differently than I do. John, for example, didn't use a bad lever like us lazy folk, and he used a safety in between slow fire shots, at least an offhand he did. I wasn't really paying too much attention in prone. I was score verifier behind John during the standing, and I saw him flick the safety off after shot number two or three. I thought to myself, did, did he just click that safety off? Then I noticed he fired clicked the safety back on, loaded the next round, sent the bolt home to the chamber, and flicked the safety off again. Son of a biscuit. That's something you don't see every day. But John made it look smooth as glass every time he did it. I have to commend him for including that in his offhand sequence. It was apparent that this is in his process and it's been there for a long time because it was one sweeping motion and he never missed it well-oiled machine. I really enjoyed watching that. And he laid down a good offhand score to back it all up. Well done, sir. So episode 27 highlighted a problem that's been arising for the last 300 rounds or so. The problem started showing up around round number 600-ish through the rifle, and now we're at a shocking 900 rounds downrange just since Camp Perry ended two months ago. Man, how time flies. Anyway, the problem that I had was what I had previously called delayed ignition, but more commonly known as hang fires, as I've learned over the last few weeks. Basically, what happens is I pull the trigger and it's either an immediate bang or it's a brief pause and then a bang. Almost like if you broke the trigger, it'd either go off when the trigger first broke or when your finger reached the end of the range of trigger pull if you had some travel built into it. Imagine that. That's mighty frustrating, mighty surprising, and it's mighty dreadful to your scores. However, I'll admit that it's been mighty helpful in showing some of my weaknesses, which is what we'll get to in just a few minutes. After the most recent Tuesday night league match, which occurred just before episode 27, I thought to myself, what would cause so much hangup in the bolt system that it's impeding the firing pin from moving forward? Now we talked about primers and powder, and we put that into our back pocket because it's possible but not quite likely. We talked about the trigger problem, which it may be, and we talked about the bolt being gross on the inside. I ended up cleaning out as much as I could on the inside of the bolt sleeve, and I removed any brass shavings that I could find, thinking that maybe some of those shavings might have been wedging the firing pin in the firing pin hole, which could logically retard the pin from moving forward with all the energy. My hope was that this would clear up the problems for Saturday's championship match. Wrong with a capital R. I did have a pretty good run going during my prep time dry fire, and obviously I called a 30 with three X's for my first few shots. No, my position was feeling pretty good, but I I knew I was gonna have to work pretty hard over the next 22 shots just to stay in the game. The first four shots were on call, and everything was looking up. But then it happened the dreaded hang fire paired up with an obvious lack of follow through. Shot number five. Miss at 3.30, a miss. Now, usually I have a high power guardian angel out there somewhere who normally does outstanding work. Recently, though, they are probably overworked and underpaid. We got to fix that. Normally he or she is right there watching over me and tugging on my shirt sleeve when I'm about to do something really dumb. This time, though, for shot number five, My high power guardian angel was off at the bar grabbing their third double scotch on the rocks thinking to themselves, nah, he's good, he's got it this round. Well, the shot number five hang fire was so long and my follow through was okay for a bit and then drifted way off to the right. Now in retrospect, that makes a little bit of sense. I carry a lot of tension in my rifle during offhand. If I were to shoot and then continue looking down the scope during my rifle dismount after my so-called follow-through, or apparent lack thereof, the first place it goes is toward the 3.30 or 4 o'clock position. This would explain my hangfires from Tuesday night going to the 4 o'clock in the 8-ring position, but this one was really bad. I know it was bad because everything had been going so well for the first two siders and four rounds for record, That I thought the problem was cured. Oh so quickly we fall out of love, or whatever they say. Whatever it is, it's way too much. And if I was a drill sergeant, I would be screaming at me to improve my own follow-through. I fully own up to that one, and it is completely unacceptable. So, good, great, grand, wonderful. My problem has come back. Obviously, the clearing of the brass shavings and wipe down of the bolt inside was just not the solution. But it didn't matter. I'm five shots into an 80-round match. Time to hyper-focus on shot control and follow-through. Now wasn't the time to quit. Now was the time to put on my magical high-power helmet and hold that follow-through for as long as I darn well could. Shot number six. A close-in nine at 11 o'clock. Okay, not bad for shaking off a little bit of an odd situation in the previous shot. But thankfully, we're hanging in there. Shot number seven. Boom. Great shot. Great follow through. I called an X at 12. Sure enough, X at 11. On the target next to me. Wow. A crossfire. I haven't crossfired in my entire adult high power career. That is not an exaggeration. Call it luck focus or attention, whatever it was, it hasn't happened until today. Man, that was a beautiful shot, though. As my friend Jerry told me, well, you can check that accomplishment off the high power checklist. Dang right. In retrospect, I think it's kind of funny. If I was shooting, well, it's not funny, but if I was shooting 10s and Xs and then shot a crossfire, I think it would be mentally more challenging to get back into the game and continue shooting more 10s and Xs. But somehow, knowing the string was already falling apart, it was far easier to laser in and roll with those punches. For the rest of the string, I had three more hangfires that were just about worse than the first one, and it decimated my score. A 164. Yep, 164 is what I walked off the line with. Tail between my legs, but somewhat giggling like a little schoolgirl. The rest of the day was great because following through in positions supported by slings is gosh darn easier than an offhand. A 200 with 14x in rapid sit, including an emergency magazine swap due to... stupidity. A 199 and 9x in rapid prone. And a 200 with 18x in slow prone. A listener named John recently sent me an email and encouraged me to keep after the bolt gun. He passed along a little advice that a great bolt gunner told him about running a Tub-2K and that advice was do not panic. Well, that's great advice. Don't panic. In the last seven days or so, I guess as of Saturday, the last seven days, I had four, count them, four situations requiring me to do a second magazine exchange with the bolt rifle in rapid strings. Two of them were caught on video, so I was able to see what happened and how I reacted. Not panicking was certainly on the priority list. Only once did I start to get a little rushed, and that was actually this Saturday during the Short Course Championship during Rapid Sit. For a little background, I have one magazine that's a little... eh, finicky. It doesn't like to feed the second round almost... ever. So I took a silver sharpie and I wrote a big question mark on it as a reminder to use it only if necessary. I keep it as my emergency mag, though it's about as reliable as a blind goldfish trying to fetch the newspaper each morning. So on this Saturday morning, I had the question mark mag sitting outside of my grasp so that I wouldn't accidentally grab it during a normal mag exchange. However, When I moved on to my second string of 10 shots, I, for whatever absent minded reason, put that magazine into the rotation. So now I have normal mag number 3 for shots 10 through 14, and accidentally question mark emergency mag for the second half. So after my 10th through 14 shots, I unknowingly grabbed that pesky magazine, checked the timer, which read 24 seconds. I got one round off, and then the second round did not feed, and I went straight for that spare mag, which was actually my main magazine. The second magazine exchange and the subsequent four rounds were very rushed, but thankfully we're all in the ten ring and all on time. Don't panic? That's tough. I was close to, if maybe even a little, maybe just a little bit clinically panicking. Well, during the evening between the Saturday state short course championship and the Sunday fun match, I had taken the firing pin assembly out of the bolt again, cleaned out the bolt sleeve again, but this time I ran a 17 caliber brush with a patch wrapped around it soaked with hoppies toward the head of the bolt into the firing pin taper area and found out that it came out mighty gunky. Almost. And I use this term carefully, not accusatory, so don't read into it here. It was almost rust-colored. I ran almost 30 patches up there, trying to clear out whatever it was, and it still came out less than perfect, but far better than it was. I thought this would solve my problems, or at least improve what I was feeling so I could get a better idea if maybe I was on the right track. Unfortunately, Sunday brought dismal weather. Spotty showers, cooler temperatures, and soggy, soggy, soggy grass. Thankfully, there were four of us there, and the match director turned this into a chance to set up at 200 and just have some fun in order not to waste the trip out to the range, which is over three hours round trip for me. I was eternally grateful to have this opportunity to see if my bolt had cleaned up its act, which it didn't. At all. So back to the drawing board. So now what? Well, time to connect the modem to America Online and email Gary Alisio. I'm out of ideas, and it's time to roll with the big dogs on this one. So I took a few photographs of the primers of the two rounds that failed to fire, as well as some of the off-center primer strikes that had come out on the other brass. And I even set up a side-by-side comparison to previous primers that worked fine and showed centered and deeper strikes circa shot count. 400 or so. I laid it all out on the table for Gary to see via email, who promptly replied, on a Sunday no less, that my firing pin was likely bent. You gotta be kidding me. How did we not think of that? Okie doke, back to the workbench. I pulled out the firing pin assembly and tossed it in my Sinclair runout detector, and wouldn't you know it, six-to-eight-thousandths run-out with wear showing on one of the radial edges of the firing pin. Are you kidding me? I could have probably solved this two weeks ago by simply emailing him. What a sensei. Gary reached out to Pierce Engineering, who is the company who manufactures the receiver and the bolt, and they told me to put the bolt from my 6BR into my 223 bolt sleeve and see what comes out of it. Did you know they're the exact same size? Because I did not. Pierce said to try that, and if it clears up, they'll send me a new firing pin. If not, then it's off to the local postal service to get it sent over to Michigan for an inspection. So now I have my other Bolt's firing pin in the 223 Bolt, and it's ready to go for the next match I get to fire, which is in early October, before the final Illinois tournament for the year. On suggestion, I also have a titanium firing pin in the mail as well, in case push comes to shove and I can't get that one from the 6BR to work. But I suppose it's probably more of a backup anyway since I have three identical firing pins on the workbench. If all that doesn't work, man, I am in a world of hurt if that happens because I only have three days between my range day and the Illinois Championship coming up. I'm going to have to either shoot service rifle or quickly rebarrel the Elysio back to 6BR and shoot across the course and a 3x600. A fun challenge, no less, but not my preferred route. Okay, a pain-in-the-butt saga here, really, but there are a few silver linings in this that I've come to realize since it all started. Firstly, where things go wrong is where you get intimately familiar with different components. Is your load not working out the way you want? Time to hit the books hit the press, and hit the shooting bench. Is your service rifle bolt acting a little funny? Time to learn all about it, fix it, and maintain it better. Are you questioning optics? Well, become a master at understanding optics and all that go along with it. Now having bolt problems with a Remington 700 style bolt, I've learned more than I care to know about bolts. Am I happy this happened? Absolutely not but I am glad to have acquired more knowledge and experience with it for the future. Absolutely, yes. Had it not been for these issues, who knows how long it would have been until I even questioned how the inside of a 700 bolt works. Secondly, I've really learned how poor my follow-through is. I believe it was Carl Bernofsky that had said something along the lines of, I don't believe you can learn to ignore recoil you must be consistent in your reaction to it. So now I'm wondering if I'm being inconsistent with my reaction to it, or if I'm consistent, is it just that exaggerated? I mean, a miss is a miss. Whether the round went off exactly on the trigger break or not. I guess if a shooter has a three-minute flinch every single shot, but flinches the exact same every time, then that would be fine. And now off-script, I'm kind of curious if keeping a three-minute flinch the same is easier or harder than trying to eliminate any flinch from recoil consistently. Just curious. Anyway, I need to improve my follow-through. That's for darn sure. Considering the hang fires were less than one second in all likelihood, I shouldn't be off-target within a second of breaking the trigger. That we can all agree on. But it does lead me to my final question in this saga. What the heck bent the firing pin at 600 rounds in the first place? JP at HPHpodcast.com. Woo-wee, it's been a while since we've done a really good mental machine. It's great to be back, and thanks for having me. I recently met a listener named Mike from Audi's, who passed along a few reading recommendations, which turned out to be outstanding suggestions. His original email was for Nancy Tompkins' book, Prone and Long Range Shooting. Now, I had already read that book, highlighted it up and down, and then realized it was actually still in my work bag from when I was getting ready to learn how to shoot better prone with my Alessio. Great book, highly recommended. Prone and Long-Range Shooting by Nancy Tompkins. I got mine on Amazon, but you can actually order yours directly through her website at Rifleshootingbynancy.com, and she'll even sign you an autographed copy for you if you're so inclined. Rifleshootingbynancy.com He also suggested a few others, notably with Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham, which is probably my favorite technique book as well as Bullseye Mind by Dr. Raymond Pryor. I had started to read that book, but I actually hadn't finished it because it related so much with Winning in Mind that it was becoming just a bit repetitive, although full of great information. Honestly, if I had read Bullseye Mind first, I probably would have put down with Winning in Mind. They're both exceptional resources and can really get you zeroed in on your mental game. Mike had sent me an email quite literally minutes before I was walking out of the house for a 14-day work stretch where I would only be in and out of town maybe once or twice. Yeah, sucks to suck sometimes. Mike's suggestion was to read Bullseye Mind, Chapter 11, Shooting with Confidence. I hadn't read that part of the book yet, and without hesitation, though, I grabbed it off my dresser, threw it in my work bag, and off we went to the airport. I wasn't even halfway through my first flight of the day, and I had already read that chapter twice. Once to get the gist of it, and once really to absorb it and relate it to high-power shooting. You know I'm a slow reader, and this is not a long section. I won't drag this one out, but I do want to highlight a few of some of Dr. Pryor's thoughts about shooting with confidence. First off, we need a definition here, because everyone views confidence slightly different. Personally, if I had to define this, I would say confidence is knowing you are capable and competent enough to deal with the situation at hand to have correct decision making and execution. Somebody else on the line may say something totally different. Maybe that it's uh, believing in yourself to perform well enough to succeed and be successful in an endeavor. At a NASCAR Bristol race the other day, Denny Hamlin would have defined confidence as assuming that everyone knows who you are and that you're going to win the race and everybody else sucks. At least that's the message he portrayed on TV. You guys know I don't like Denny Hamlin at all. So during driver introductions, see, I'm already getting off track again, but whatever. During driver introductions in front of a racetrack full of fans, he walked up to the microphone and instead of saying his name and hometown like everyone else, he just said, You know. Then after we all painfully watched him actually win the race, with the fans booing him, he told the fans at the track, I just beat your favorite driver. And then the announcer asked who that driver was, and he responded with, all of them. Come on, man, what a hack. I hope he stubs his toe. Funny story, and we're getting off track again, but... Forgive me here, I'm sworn to secrecy on this one, but sometime in the last year, I was fortunate enough to have some fish and chips and a few, uh, wobble waters with 2004 NASCAR Cup Series champion Kurt Busch at an undisclosed location under undisclosed terms. Under the million things we talked about, one of them was rifle shooting and the mental aspects that go into what we both do for him on the track and for me at the range. Somewhere along the lines of discussion, he asked me who my most disliked driver was, and naturally, Denny Hamlin came out of my mouth almost faster than I could think it. And then Kurt said, You know, he's really changed as a person for the better. After getting his own team with 2311 and teaming up with Michael Jordan, he's become more of a mentor figure and has really changed. Man, I wish I could have another water or two with Kurt and see if that's still the case. I I maybe assume so, whatever. By the way, Kurt, fantastic guy. We talked for about three minutes of NASCAR and the remainder about other jobs, shooting rifles and shooting ducks and traveling. He's a really good dude. And I wonder if he's still thinking about that one time that we got to hang out. Yeah, back on topic here. <laughs> Dr. Pryor. Dr. Pryor defines confidence as, and I quote from his book here, confidence is choosing to think about what you want to happen when you're performing. End quote. I agree with him here. Confidence is what helps people perform when things get ugly. Because when things get ugly, your mind goes a million different directions naturally, and along with it can go your confidence. Another fantastic quote here, Without confidence, shooters doubt their skills, they overthink, they hesitate, and they try to force their performance to happen. End quote. Ding, ding, ding. Nailed it again. Maybe I'll go back and give this book a full read-through. I'm sure there's some nuggets that are not necessarily covered in with winning in mind. Prime example here. Imagine we're standing at the shootoff of the President's 100. There's a fresh wind that's quartering from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock, and it's switching every now and then. First off, the 20 top shooters didn't make it to the shoot-off on accident. We've already talked about that in a previous episode. These guys and gals are confident and focused. But let's throw an oddball in here and say, the first year that I was shooting high power as a sharpshooter, I happen to make it into the top 20. First off, I'd be really surprised I was there in the first place, but that's neither here nor there. Secondly, and more importantly, I'd be shaking in my little boy boots. Why? Because I'd have not the damnedest idea of what to do. Wow, this wind is weird. And it's fast. Why is everybody looking at us, and how does this shoot-off work? You can already see where this is going. Would I have... Any confidence at all? Hells no. Would I shoot well? Absolutely, probably not. I would have suffered with match nerves, thinking about the audience watching, confused on the wind, concerned about if my load was good enough, wondering if I had enough rounds to shoot the shoot off to begin with. You get it. A bit exaggerated, but hey, in 2020, well, 2019, I guess, that would have been more than likely me. But what about that number one spot? I'm sure John Cogsall, if I'm saying that correctly, wasn't thinking the same things I just listed a second ago. He was probably laser-focused, with a plan in mind for tackling the wind, imagining the string, and thinking about good shots, a.k.a. confidence. Alright, enough in fantasy land. I said I'd keep this short, so I'll just leave you with one more thought from Dr. Pryor. Quote, Given two shooters of similar skill, the more confident shooter will win almost every time." I can happily attest to that. This year I struggled a few times to keep the head in the right spot. It negatively impacted my game and hurt my scorecards. There's no question about that. Now having a few months of dirty dirty offhand scores doesn't help anything. But trying to be resilient to adversity time over time, after time, after time, after time, well, it starts to wear on a person. I found it incredibly challenging to keep negative thoughts at bay, especially when I was working at improving my position, but it wasn't working. Let's take rapid sit, for example. I had quoted in an earlier episode, probably last season, that I had a really stout, solid, rapid sitting position. And in 2021... Thor could have struck me with a lightning bolt and I would still be honed into the X-Ring. It was great. Fast forward to this year, and it was all over the place. Now, experiencing this a few times at the beginning of the season isn't a huge deal. That's to be expected when you're knocking off some of the winter rust. But over and over and over again throughout the season it kept happening. Targets. And then the heartbeat would start up like a hummingbird, and the hold would start to bobble like a drunk person trying to stand on a basketball. Well, time after time, it kept coming up. I'd try to improve it, I'd change something up, and nothing would help. After a really long string of this problem coming up over the summertime, it seemed almost like I was bordering insanity trying to keep a positive mindset going into rapid sit. Usually, this situation would pop up after ciders. That evil thought of, okay, don't let the heartbeat rise and stop flexing your arms and back into position and bobbling all over the place because that's bad and you're going to do bad again. My dude, are you kidding me? I sit here and preach on a podcast and preach and preach and preach from my soapbox or whatever that a positive mental outlook is crucial and it's mandatory to eliminate negative thoughts. And then I get caught up in it myself. That's disappointing. I mean, can you really blame me though? Where I was accustomed to losing only a handful of X's was now becoming losing a handful of points in what I considered to be the easiest position of all of them. For me, it took a lot of work and switching to match rifle did help my sitting service rifle position. And now I'm back on the track of good thoughts prior to shooting the string rather than panic-driven negative thoughts. Long story short here, I unquestionably agree with a lot of what is stated about confidence in the bullseye mind read, most notably that confidence is choosing to think good shots and that a lack of confidence will lead to much lower scores. Because that's where I was, rock bottom of my sitting game with low confidence. And when I read that quote, it hit me in the face like a 10-pound hammer. Go check out that book. If you're looking to boost your mental game, go pick up either Bullseye Mind by Dr. Raymond Pryor or With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. Whichever you choose, you'll never regret it. Both Mike and I agree it'll add points to your game and change your mindset about competitive shooting altogether. All right, my people, let's call it a day. I have some sightseeing to do before we leave tomorrow. And gosh, if I'm not just jonesing for some poutine and maybe a Guinness. Let's see what we have on the horizon. Well, the season's quickly wrapping up as I look on the calendar. Don't be in denial, people. Get out to the range before it's too cold. I have a Tuesday night match coming up where I'm using a different firing pin and different primers for most of the day. That'll eliminate two variables, I think. I'm also on an endeavor to test some longer-seated rounds per Gary Alisio's suggestion for better magazine feeding. Currently, I'm sitting around 2.265 for an OAL on a Sierra 77. That gives me just 30 thousandths of jump to the lands. He suggested for an OAL of 2.300 or even 350 if I could do it. Well, I extended them about 30 thousandths Further, and that's going to give me minimal jump. In my experience, I've found Sierras to be fairly jump-friendly, but I'm a little hesitant to drop the jump to five thousandths or less for fear of losing some of that wonderful accuracy I've developed on the 77 grain Sierras. We will see. I had these loaded up for testing during the rapid strings of the next match, as well as some verification rounds of my burgers on the new seating depths. Fort Defiance Rifle and Pistol Club is hosting their 80-round match just outside of Wyoming, Illinois on September 30th. That'll be their closing match for the year, and if I wasn't working, I would be all over it. It's a great range, shooting electronic targets at 200 yards, and has run very efficiently. Also on the horizon, Milan, Illinois is hosting the 80-round across the course Fall Classic on October 7th, and a 3x600 match on Sunday for the Bjornstad Trophy match. That is a beautiful range that I highly encourage you to go try out. We'll be deep into the fall season, so the leaves should be changing and maybe even falling, which should give you a great wind indicator since you can barely make out the wind flag, which is located below you. On October 21st, you'll hopefully find me scouting some Tennessee ranges around the Nashville area, starting with a service rifle match at the Dead Zero Range in Spencer, Tennessee. I've been looking forward to shooting that range forever. I've had the pleasure of losing plenty of matches over at Oak Ridge to some hard holders, but I saw some scores from Dead Zero that were flat out impressive. November 6 actually kicks off the Talladega 600 Southern Classic. I had a blast the first year I went. We shot the Congressional 30 the Dixie Doubles, and a leg match. And if you're close to legging out and you're feeling frisky for an adventure, this is the place to be. Twice I was awarded 10-point legs at Talladega. There were a lot of people there that day, and I got fairly lucky. Let's wrap this one up. These were two episodes posted within a week of each other, and please give me a breather on the next one. Two weeks away from more work means no shooting, no low development, no podcast, but more importantly and more sanely, no more hangfires. As I'm forecasting ahead, I think it'll be the first or more likely the second week in October before I can get back to you and hopefully with some of the problems solved. If you want to chip in, give a shooter shout out, commiserate, or just say, hey, shoot me a line. I can be reached at jp at That's HPH for the High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one.